So, aloha everyone. This is Matt Beal, um, filling in for Katie Minkus and the Hawaii Life Procast. This is a special workshop related episode of this lovely podcast, and I am your host today, as I will be for the workshop-related episodes coming up. So I'm psyched and thrilled to welcome Laura Brady, President of Concierge Auctions, to be our first guest on this workshop-related podcast. Aloha, Laura. Aloha. Mahalo. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. Okay, so I know that Concierge has done a lot of business in Hawaii because we've done so much business. So I, I make up that the people listening probably are familiar with Concierge because this is sort of an internal gig for now. But because we want to blow this up and share it with a larger workshop audience, can you just kind of start at the beginning and, and tell the Concierge story of who you are and and how you kind of came to form the company? I'd be happy to, our origin story. So right. we, we, found, <laughs> we founded the company in 2008. My partner, Chad Roberts, who is now our chairman of the company, he and I were working together in luxury real estate sales in the traditional sense. We were with the Sotheby's brand in Florida. And when we started to see the market turn as early as 2005, really, in the, in the Florida market, we went to look into other options of selling for our clients. So for our listing clients, we started researching auction. And actually, Chad has a background in auction and auction technology from some prior work that he did in Silicon Valley uh, before getting into real estate. So he and I started putting together an auction format to sell listings within our brokerage. And that turned out to be quite successful. What we were you know, attempting to do is, is address the some inefficiencies when it comes to particularly selling ultra high end product um, properties that are not as liquid as the you know average property. There aren't as many buyers that are out there, which of course um, most people listening to this deal with luxury products they understand that. So anyway, we found great success doing this within the brokerage, and ultimately I left um, my real estate traditional real estate business in 2008 and founded this company in order to take our auction concept, which we didn't feel any other company was, was producing auctions the way that we thought that they could be done um, to a greater audience. So we've been just growing year over year since 2008, and we just surpassed a billion dollars in sales this year. But to put that into perspective, we will sell another billion within the next 18 months or so. So we've now grown into... 32 states and 14 countries. And as you mentioned, we have been active in Hawaii since 2009, actually. So because of you know, our, our relationships there with consistent brokerages like yours, Matt, that we've worked with, we've had business in, in Hawaii more consistently, perhaps than any other state. So we're happy to, to come there and, and work with you guys. So cool. That's so awesome. I always love, I, I love hearing the story. And I think I, you know, for me, because we also started, Hawaii Life started in 2008, and, mm -hmm. you know, in a way, it feels like 20 minutes uh, have, have gone by, and in a way, it feels like, you know, 20 years. And I know. So, uh, <laughs> You're not kidding. And, and, and from the outside looking in at, at what Concierge has done, I mean, I know, so people say to me all the time, and I might be fast-forwarding a little bit in our questions, but I always get this the kind of the same sort of like, I don't know how you do it question which is like 
how do you have you know over 200 agents and all these all these offices on different islands, you know, and, and how do you manage it all? And there's no way you can possibly keep tabs on that many transactions and, you know, and on and on and on. And, I, you know, obviously technology scales and um, mm-hmm. there, there are definitely ways that we can do it. And, and it does, you know, get pretty straightforward. Like it, we have a lot of eyes on these transactions and it's just not as hard as it looks. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but it's kind of true. Then I look at what, you guys are doing what concierge is doing and i'm just you know do you have a sense of like how many markets you're in and talk about managing a mobile workforce i mean you're (laughs) uh, and then the growth right so it's not just the geography of you know the world right countries Mm -hmm. uh, let alone the u.s but then these regions and and the depth that's involved and just looking at you know our I'm just seeing this one little thread, uh, you know, here in Hawaii and how that's grown. Uh, I know this is a crazy question, but like WTF, like how do you, how do you do it? You know, what's the, is there a secret there or is it like, I mean, I know that's a, that's a crazy big question, but just to break it down, like what, who's, so for example, how many direct reports do you have? Like who, who reports to Laura Brady? I have four direct reports. So, so I oversee like, our our CTO, our VP of marketing, our finance controller, and our office manager of the Austin office. So you're right. I mean, as we've grown, really, we've taken every challenge as we've grown and improved upon what we were doing before, right? You have to. I mean, that's why, you know, a lot of businesses don't make it in the early days and why for us, eight years into this, it's kind of like we're, we have some people comment on us being, you know, overnight successful. No, it's been eight years. <laughs> so really it, technology is huge. So as you mentioned, our other than, I, okay, so to set the stage, our company right now, we have 68 full-time employees and it's pretty evenly divided between sales roles, which are the roles that are dispersed all over the world, executing auctions for us and helping to talk to sellers and agents about our platform. So that's about 30 to 35 employees that are in sales-related positions. And then the other 30 to 35 are located in our Austin, Texas office where we have um, technology, marketing, finance, legal and HR. So wow. the, yeah, well, so that's an interesting of, spread. I mean, just because, so just real quick as a quick diversion, for those of you playing the Matt Field drinking game, uh, every time I say, wow, you have to drink. So by the end of this podcast, you'll be <laughs> really, really drunk. Um, no. So, I mean, it's interesting that you have as many people in the field as you do sort of in house. Uh, that, mm-hmm. That's a, that's a very unique uh, sort of atypical that that's not common in a real estate practice right because pick any company i would argue we're in-house heavy and we're sort of 40 people employed and you know over 200 in the field uh, who yeah. then also maybe they have you know an assistant or some other sort of in-house assistant but but we're we cover so many of those bases that a lot of them don't and so that's mm-hmm. even the you know, whatever one to five ratio, you're, you're like one to one, which is incredible. Right. 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 Right now we are one to one, but I can say that our sales force will be growing to take up more of a percentage and the back of the house work will be able to be more 
uh, we'll have more economies of scale. We're rolling out new technologies to, to help make that happen as well. But as far as being totally geographically dispersed with half of our workforce, we work with real estate agents on every transaction that we conduct. So we always have a listing agent. And then, as you know, we always have a, a cooperating broker commission offered. But the listing agents are really important roles in what we do. So, you know, you, your team and other agents that we work with are really are, are experts in the marketplace, right? So we're there to help conduct the auction and to do all of the marketing and all the work that the back of the house folks are doing. But we need, we're, our model is predicated upon also using the sales force that's in place with, you know, the 2 million real estate agents in the United States. So, so I want to I, I want to flesh that out a little bit because I and I also kind of want to share my experience, my personal story about it, and and I think I also see this going on in other markets where and just to sort of collapse it all from a historical perspective. So you know here I'm whatever running a brokerage or I'm a I'm a listing agent and I've got a high end listing. Now you use the expression ultra high end. What in just just to quantify? And I know it's probably market specific, but is there like a limit for you of where you like what's the concierge wheelhouse of of pricing? It's definitely market specific. We've actually pinpointed all of the markets in the United States at least, and that that are quote unquote luxury or have luxury product, and and decided what threshold. But the, for us in above, Hawaii, above which. it seems like Sorry, it's like kind of north north of five or yeah. somewhere in there for us. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just a little, I mean, maybe there's been some deals that we've done for less, but, and, and I know there have, but so anyway, just back to the story. So I'm, uh, let's say I, I've got, here I am, $5 million listing, and I honestly don't remember our first interactions, except to say that I think I was pretty harsh. Like I, I was, you know, not super enrolled in the idea. And I think at the time too, I mean, part of it is the market, but also I think you must know there, there certainly was, and I I'm being intentional about being past tense because I think the stigma around the word auction is mm-hmm. changing. And I think largely because of what you're doing and I'm, I don't mean to like blow smoke. I'm just, you know, this is getting a little more normal that mm-hmm. people are resorting to this. And I think, you know, the world is flattening and people are realizing that, like, you know, the entire country of Australia has been trading real estate this way quite normally mm-hmm. for some time. And, that, you know, it's a little, it's a little like, less stigmatized. And it doesn't mean that, you know, that, that it's a fire sale or that someone's being foreclosed mm-hmm. on or that there's this major drama. But, you know, what's happening, what happened for me was, like, I had to deal with sort of the shame of not producing, right? So, like, you know, I've had this listing for a really long time and I've got this this kind of squirming client who wants out. And, you know, you guys come in on this on this white horse and I'm kind of defensive. Like, who are these people? I don't want them in mm-hmm. my market. Like, what are you going right. to do that I can't do? And, you know, ah. and, and then I'm, I have to kind of haze you. And then over time, of course, what happened for us was, oh, wow, these, this is legit, you know. And, and I always say, you're running a sprint in the period of time, you know, that's, that literally is six to eight weeks, mm-hmm. doing all the same things with the same spin and the same sort of velocity and intensity 
that we would really should be prepared to do over the course of probably a year to 18 months because, right. like I always say, the client, the buyer for these properties just physically isn't in this market. And so we're we're always waiting for someone to get off of a plane. And there's mm-hmm. zero reason that, like, I, you know, I tell sellers all the time, look, just because I take this listing, that doesn't mean that someone's going to, like, fuel up the plane and load up the kids and grab the nannies and pull the kids out of school and, like, take two weeks off of work and fly to Hawaii to come see your house. Like, that's not happening. Right. Like, they're coming – they're coming over July or August or during the holidays or it's, it's mm-hmm. good. And you know what, if it works at that time, they'll take a look at it. And by the way, they might not be pressured or like feel a sense of urgency at all because what's mm-hmm. to say it's not available next summer. So, yeah. you know, this is the challenge that we deal with. And I think, you know, this, some of this will sound like a sales pitch for concierge, but creating that both the fear of loss and the sort of, you know, no matter what this is going to trade on this day gives us that kind of ripcord of knowing that something's going to happen. I think that actually does get people on a plane. So right. anyway, I'm just, right. I'm curious, like, is that a predictable response when you come into a new market? Are people like kind of um, defensive and like, who are you or, yeah. or do you, ha- do you have a rap about how to get in? Yeah, well, that's definitely commonplace, you know, that the first time that we come into a market or the first time that we work with a particular agent that they might feel defensive like you did, Matt. I think that's more common than not. I would say that it's becoming less common as more agents know about us and, and know other, you know, fellow agents who have worked with us that they can talk through with it. Um, but one thing I think it's really important for the real estate community to understand is that you mentioned the word auction having a stigma, and then you mentioned this aspect of, you know, being defensive from an agent perspective. And both of those things are felt much, much less on the actual client side of things. So our phone is ringing today mostly from sellers calling us themselves, and we would love for it to be ringing more from the agents calling us that have the sellers listed because they know that we're a tool for them, the agents do. The sellers don't really comment on the stigma of auction anymore. They used to in the early days, but it's very rare that we hear, you know, oh gosh, what are my neighbors going to think when I put up an auction sign? Instead, right. the sellers under, they now think that they are looking smart because they're being proactive or they're at least doing something, you know, that's, um, that, that is different. So, so they value that. As far as agents um, feeling defensive, I mean, it really, it, it's really just an education process. The more agents get to know how, again, we're a partner for them and we're there to help them accomplish their, their seller's goals, then, then they, they get over that. I mean, especially considering that it, it doesn't, it doesn't usually actually, it maybe never or very rarely has to do with what the agent has done to expose the property because most of the properties. My my next question to the sellers, are the sellers also complaining about what's going on or not? I mean, are they, are they sort of look, I realize that, that they did everything they can do and and it's just, there's no urgency or how, how does the seller relate to the, the listing agent or brokerage that they have? You know, it's mixed. I mean, some of them, you have to put yourself in the seller's shoes if they've been listed for, you know, a period of time that's prolonged or they or they feel frustrated. And then when they call, they're frustrated. And it's not always, I mean, it's, it's not with the agent. It's usually just, 
hey, I just don't know what else to do here. You know, my right. agent has actually exposed the property well. Right. But the challenge is that even if even if the property has been exposed really well in today's market, sometimes that's actually a detriment. Right. It's It's been in the Wall Street Journal every week and it's been on the cover of Unique Homes. And, you know, it's had right. all this exposure. So there's something wrong with it. But it still hasn't sold. So you right. know, that then makes it even worse. So um, so we've done a lot of work on researching different marketplaces. And, and I'll talk to you a little bit about this, Matt, but how days on market affect value of properties. And so oftentimes it's nothing that the agent did. It's just that the property didn't sell right when it came out of the gate. And what our research is showing is that if the property doesn't sell immediately when it comes out of the gates, and immediately is relative in, in different markets. In Hawaii, sure. it's going to be a lo- longer period of time than, you know, in a market that just has consistent traction like Palo Alto. Okay. Right, so, right. Of but course. If, 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 yeah. But if the property doesn't sell within whatever that out of the gates period of time is, then it very likely is going to remain on the market for a prolonged period of time. There are few properties that that miss that window out of the gates and then end up selling, you know, 60 days after that. It's usually they then end up going through multiple price reductions and multiple listing agents. And so the tune that we're singing right now really to the community is if you if you find that you come out of the gates and, and you don't have the traction that you want, and you've kind of missed that window, then you really should start considering other options and, and auction being one of them. And so do you think so much of this is the challenge of having the pricing conversation early on? Like, you know, I, I always say it occurs to me, and I know I'm, I'm one person, but like you, I have I have some context, you know, but we, we're the largest – listing brokerage in the state of Hawaii. <laughs> so we do have some some context. But it occurs right. to me that, especially in this this realm, this ultra high-end realm, mm-hmm. a lot of these clients really need to come to their own conclusions about value and pricing. And what I mean by that is that, you know, here's a great example. We had a, a very, very successful short sale agent back in when short sales were a thing, you know, mm-hmm. in, say 2008, 2010. This agent cranked doing a ton of deals. And it was always, you know, in a short sale, and it doesn't really matter. We're doing short sales. We're doing plenty of, you know, seven-figure short sales. It was all all over the board. But you're just brutal on value. I mean, you, you just show up and you tell everybody involved, you know, buyer, seller, bank, second lien holder, everybody, this is where it's going to trade, period. Like, mm-hmm. you just sit down. Like, you don't know anything. This is what's going to happen. And you, mm-hmm. you can flex that muscle because, you have the data and you understand the pricing and, and there's so much to lose that no one has time to kind of like be opinionated or be romantic about value. It's just, it is what it is. So the same agent then goes to pitch, you know, a four to $5 million beachfront listing. And he, he brings that, that angle, right? He says like this, like, what do you mean? Like he's sitting, having the living room listing conversation with these sellers, like, you're kidding yourselves. It's going to trade here. Like you should just price it there. Like that's crazy. Right. Of course he lost the mm-hmm. listing. So totally didn't mm-hmm. get the listing. Right. I think that conversation is, that's the delicate balance is how do you have a really enrolling conversation about days on market and about the subtlety and the psycho, you know, graphic nature of pricing. Like mm-hmm. how do you have that and not alienate? Because my advice and my coaching at the time was, listen, 
these people have to come to their own conclusions. And by the way, this is something I think that in the auction process actually does very well because the data that shows up along the way during the process helps them mm -hmm. come to terms with the market realities. But right. I think that, you know, rather than me being the guy that shows up and says, actually, it's not worth five, it's only worth three, Mm -hmm. My job is to make sure that I do everything along the way so that the market will kind of coax them into the realization that actually it's not worth five. It's probably worth three. And it's not Matt's fault, and he's not the jerk. It's, mm -hmm. it's just the market reality. But the problem is mm -hmm. I can't take 18 months to do that. I know. Do you have any advice for how to, you know, how to, I know that's, this is a broad question, but yeah. do you have any yeah. advice for agents in that living room to, to, really drill in and say, this is what we think about pricing? Well, I, I have some. So there are, there are a couple schools of thought, and I, I know most agents have thought through these, right? Like there's the concept of, quote, unquote, buying the listing, right? Telling the seller that you think that you can get $5 million and the other agents saying that they, they think they can get four and a half. But if that person right. really buys into you thinking that you can get five, then they're going to hire you. Well, the challenge is if you really don't think you can get five, then don't tell them that because then you'll end up having a listing that you have overpriced. Um, you know, you might then have a strategy of going through price reduction after price reduction uh, after and you it really, bought it. And it really will be your inventory. fault. Yeah, right. and it really is your fault, and there's a moral problem to that, right? Right. Um, so, but then there's the other school of, like, do you just tell them how it is, like your example and then let them <clears throat> end up going with an agent who buys the listing and then coming back to you. There's whatever the saying, you want to be the first love, the second marriage, and the third realtor. <laughs> um, right, right, so, right. First, first but, born. Second first born. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I love is it. it second, is it second wife, though? That still is not very so, good. Somewhere in there. <laughs> whatever, whatever. So, um, the so, third listing yeah. agent. <laughs> yeah, the third listing agent it is, which actually Chad and I were having this discussion the other day. I, I recently sold my house, and he said that last time he interviewed an agent, he chose the agent who quoted the lowest listing price for him because mm. that he, he knows that the industry so well, and he thought that that would be the right way to go. So I really feel like telling sellers how it is is, is important and not, not buying listings because the more that we – get over inflated listings, the more it makes the market dysfunctional. But with that being said, the higher the price point, really, in our experience, the less price has a bearing on when the property is going to sell. So what I mean by that is, especially when you get up into, so like in your market, a three million, three and a half million, four, up to five, you know, you, you pretty well know how to price those. But as you get up higher, you know, listing a home for, $12 million or 15 or 18 right. or 20, $22 million, you know, it, it's not about the price. It's more about the product and who's going to come forward um, with interest. So um, I, my biggest point that is proven in that type of price category is that re price reductions don't make a difference. So, right. you know, when, right. when you end up with a $20 million listing and it doesn't sell, do not do the, you know, 19 and a half, 19.25, you know, 19. <laughs> <laughs> like, 19,950. Who, who cares? Who cares, right? So, you know, I, I think be honest, you know, if, if you really feel confident that you can sell a property quickly, you know, for a certain price for the seller, be honest with them. Don't try to buy into listings that's not good for you or for the client. 
And, and then, you know, again, the higher the price point, I think you can do more of that, like let the seller have their own price discovery and, and, and get that, like you said, that experience that they need to if you're up in the, in the price thresholds that are really hard to value. But again, it's not about, I wouldn't argue with a client over price as much if it's in that really high echelon because it's not going to matter. It doesn't matter. Right. The product itself, you know. Yeah. So, but basically, it's you're somewhere between. So the, in the in the lower part of of still high end, it's and and I think across the board, you're saying you know be an adult and be honest and give them the, give them the sort of tell them your baby's ugly or you know give them the the facts about yeah. the pricing right out of the gate. And in the higher end, you can, I think it's safe to assume that the, the margins are going to be bigger anyway, and that price isn't really going to be the major driver. It's it's products because and and. You know, while there's some sort of romantic silliness about that, like where every seller of a $20 million home thinks their their house is the greatest thing on the planet, there is mm-hmm. also some logic to like there just aren't relevant sales or comps or like they're they're mm-hmm. all so different that it, you can't really compare them. And fine, you know, put a price tag on it and what's what's wrong with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It, let me shift gears because I want to ask you one of the tough questions, and I, I have an answer for this that's only based on my experience, but how do you handle the ones that don't work? Like when a deal blows up or uh, or, or just it just does. Mm-hmm. How do you, and I know that, I mean, I'll, well, from my experience, I'm going to say that's way, it's way less than 10%, so it's single digit percentage of, of the time. So, I mean, I think I, think I can think of, we've done north of, 20 deals with concierge mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. And, and that's on both sides uh you know whether we represent a buyer or a seller maybe it's more in 20 if we really think about all the buy side stuff um mm-hmm. and i can think of two that didn't happen one was because a buyer disappeared and the other was because the sellers were just they were they were our clients so i can't go into too much details but they just they didn't let the trade happen it's the best way to put it and I, I kind of know mm-hmm. the outcome of those, which is like surprisingly positive. But how do you deal with the ones that don't work? Right. So if an auction doesn't go through, well, there are two different phases of it not going through. So the first is that we might end up canceling an auction before the bidding starts. And that could be because the seller doesn't you know, feel comfortable with the traction we've received or we don't, you know, there just wasn't the market there that we were hoping that there would be. The reserve wasn't met actually is, is, or, or we don't, well, actually in that case, the auction would still go off, but the bidding might not meet a reserve if there is a reserve on the auction. Um, so, so in those cases, the property might never go to contract, right? If the property actually goes to contract, we've actually have a very small percent of the properties that fall through. So only about two percent, only about two percent fall through where you know the buyer and seller come to an agreement, the high bidder signs the contract, you know, and then for some reason someone backs out. So so that's that's quite rare. So in the other situation where you know the auction just didn't create the momentum that was necessary to bring a market price, then the property just remains on the market for sale typically, um, because again the properties are all listed with listing agents. So. In that case, we do have, after the auction momentum has been created, you'll know how many bidders were registered, how much interest was produced from prospects, and 
good listing agents will work those prospects and try to get a contract done, you know, after the auction occurs, um, right. which that does happen sometimes. You know, the, another thing that comes out of an auction that doesn't go through that you've mentioned a few times, Matt, is the seller being more realistic about the value of the property, right? Because now they, they have actual intelligence that shows them that we've had, you know, 100 people through the house. Actually, our average is 70 previews for every property in our books. Um, I love that you know that. Through the house. <laughs> yeah, I know, all, I, I know all those stats. So, are you um, that – are you the data nerd? I mean, I, because I, I mean, I, I'm jumping around a little bit, but one, the last yeah. few deals that we've done, it struck me so strongly that, you know, and it seems like it's been a shift. And I know probably that's just the scale of the volume of business that you've done, but it seemed like you guys showed up with, with not just data, but these really like powerful ways to interpret and give meaning to the data that really worked on behalf of the seller. And I'm not, that's not a mm-hmm. sales pitch for concierge. I mean, I, I, it was like very literal, you know, down to the, to the moment, like, okay, look, here's how it works. You know, when, when, when you have this much interest or you have this, this, the, the whole sort of incentive, the idea of like, okay, we want to get people enrolled in this thing. And you start being able to really analyze the funnel yeah. all the way yeah. down to the bottom. And then, you know, you're not, you're not making a hard and fast prediction of where it's going to sell, but you got to know going in that like, if you've got this many people that have put in, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of earnest money, you feel a little bit more safe. And, and I, I don't want to tip the hand behind your strategy because I know there's mm-hmm. this way more to it than that, but it, are, was that all, is that all Laura Brady? Is that, Who's the who's the data geek behind all of this stuff? <laughs> well, we we have become a lot more data driven, even in the past. Well, especially in the past two years, but the past year for sure, we have a fully dedicated data team that analyzes our data every day. And we've been on a Salesforce CRM platform since 2010, and we've been tracking digital interactions with our clients through HubSpot since shortly thereafter. So. So we have digital information about visitors to our website that dates back six years plus. So we're now able to really dig into that information and try to see, you know, what does that mean? And you're right. At this point now, we're driving our business very much so on the the historical um, analytics of other auctions that have been successful. So we're able to say, you know, in one week into the auction, we should have this much traction. We should have had this many showings. Um, we should have had this many website visitors, et cetera. And we're able to slice and dice that because for different geographies or different types of products, because properties that are in Hawaii command different attention on average than a property in, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut or a ranch in Texas, for example. Right. So, right. And, and so a lot of that has to do with, yes, I'm a data nerd. I think Chad's a data nerd too. We would say most, um, a lot of us in the company have become that way because we we need to be more fact driven um, or as fact driven as we can be. But really, it's taken eight years of historical information to get to a place where we now can be that precise. Um, so we are able to tell sellers, you know, we really should have this much traction after week one, two, three, four, five and then give them real-time information when those milestones come as to how we're exceeding 
or, you know, maybe falling a little bit behind and need to course correct a little bit to make sure that it's a successful sale. And you must be, so I want to ask you about uh, instant gavel. So just because mm-hmm. I, I think you must be getting incredible data out of that, if I understand yes. the volume that it's representing. So just tell the listeners what instant gavel is for those who don't know. Sure. So instant gavel is our mobile bidding application. So it's an app that you can download in the app store, instant, I-N-S-T-A-N-T, gavel. And anyone can download the app and watch our auctions as they come about live. You can watch the bidding live. We rolled out Instant Gavel in the fourth quarter of last year. And before that, we actually tried a digital bidding platform back in 2010. And we were way early. Most bidders at that time still wanted to participate in person, live, you know, see the auctioneer, or they wanted to call in. They weren't as comfortable with bidding on their computer or on their phone. Actually, the phone capability wasn't even there back then. Um, to the extent that it is now. So anyway, in in Q4 of last year, we rolled out our mobile bidding app, and very quickly it took off. Buyers enjoy it a lot more than bidding in a live scenario because they have even more transparency as to what bids are going on when they're going on. And we like it because you can actually slow the auction down a little bit. When you think about a live auctioneer, many of our auctions are over in five minutes because the bidding is just so fast. And with Instant right. Gavel, we're able to, you know, change the bidding increments and, and slow down the clock so, a little bit. So long story short, we expected this year that perhaps maybe half of our auctions would be conducted on the app and the other half would still be with a live auctioneer. And already through the first half of the year, we had 85% of our auctions digitally on the app. And, and that's growing. So there certainly is still a place for sometimes having a live auctioneer. But the majority of the time, the the mobile bidding app is just the way to go. So there is, like, it's not both. You don't, and when you say 85%, you're you're saying there is no physical live auctioneer. It's all conducted. Wow. 85% of our auctions this year have been purely on the app. There's no no live auctioneer. Yeah, we don't fly a team out. It's not a big party. It's just on. (laughs) It's just bidding on the app. I have to tell you this story. So Uh um, we were at, uh, we were at Inman Connect in San Francisco. I'm um, just another quick mm-hmm. uh, worth, worth shop sponsor plug for <laughs> for Inman. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this episode brought to you by. So uh, Chad and I, uh, and for those of you who don't know, Chad Roffer is, is what's Chad's title? He's he's our chairman. Okay, but Chad's he, the chairman. Yes. Yeah. Here's Austin, and also a uh, upcoming worth shop speaker. So Chad and I are at CEO Connect, which this year, uh, just a big plug for Brad, was probably the best. CEO event he's ever put on because it was at Facebook and where we're getting the tour and there's presentations and there's, you know, incredibly brilliant people talking to us and they're on this panel. And we had the Olupua auction going on at the same time. So both Chad and I are sitting in different parts of the room. (laughs) And I don't know if you remember, but that auction in particular was like, I mean, it just, it went crazy long and it was like right Mm -hmm. up to the last minute and then the bidding would reopen and someone else would come in and it was, and that happened. Mm -hmm. Multiple times. So I felt like I'm watching a sporting event, like I'm on the app. You know what I mean? Right. And I'm like looking back, I'm, I'm making eye contact with Chad across the room like, are you are you watching this? You know, wow. And then realizing, because we had a bidder in the room and we thought we were going to get it and on and on. So it's really cool. I mean, I, I, it, it helped from afar to kind of keep the enrollment. And then I'm immediately, um, you know, texting our broker in charge and, 
the agent who has the the client in the room. And it's fascinating to be able to do that in real time. It's, it's a great great tool. Yes. Maybe, Thank maybe you. we can feature it at, at Birthshop coming up and do another. Because uh, remember last year we did the Aaron Feinberg paintings, yes. which was also really fun. Uh, not paintings, that sorry, was actually, photographs. That was actually the launch of our Instant Gavel app at Workshop. So I love it. Yeah, love fourth it. quarter of last year. Mm-hmm. See, that's all you got to do is come to Workshop and bring your new <laughs> product, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you'll have incredible success. Exactly. Plug, plug, plug. Dot, 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 profit. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to I'm gonna change gears a little bit and ask you a question that I, I, I can't help but ask because I think whether – I don't know how present you are to it, but – you know, I always I always say that like take our brokers in charge or you know Katie who's our director of sales across the state uh, you know they all have a, a really really unique context for the market and what I mean by that is if you're responsible just for reviewing offers for a given market mm-hmm. or if you're seeing what's going on uh, across the state you've got your finger on the pulse of it right so you know you know the impact of things like days on market, you know, if, if we really are in a multiple offer situation in these different markets, how quickly things are trading, you know, what's predictable? Do you see multiple counter offers? Are people really duking it out or is it kind of like it goes together very quickly? I mean, all of those things mm-hmm. are indicators and sometimes they're lagging indicators and sometimes they're very immediate, like real time. Uh, I had a client recently who did a deal with a contingent deal in Hawaii and they were selling a place in the Bay Area. Uh, really Silicon Valley, and mm-hmm. the agent here in Hawaii was really kind of hammering us, like, well, when did you said it was going to trade, and what's going on, and their place is supposed to get a contract. I said, dude, it's Silicon Valley. Like, I'm pretty sure it's going to work. Sure enough, very quickly they do a deal, and it's like a seven-day close for a multimillion-dollar sale, and it's like amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And their agent's telling them that's actually since recently softened. So my question is, with all of this market context that you have, what do you see? Do you have any predictions out there? And, and I know you're you're in the the high end, which is kind of specifically what I want to ask about. Mm-hmm. What what's happening in the in the world and in the U.S. and the high end market? Sure. So I think, I mean, a few things. After listening to what you said, yes, the agents and brokers and directors of sales that are so close to particular markets, you get such a strong pulse because your market is so specific. For us, we handle, you know, so many different geographies that it's it's much broader. But with that being right. said, really what we're watching is larger trends because, again, the the buyers and sellers in all these different markets are the same because most of these clients own multiple homes. And so it's the same client that, you know, is selling that Maui house as is selling his ranch in Jackson Hole. So we're watching them as people, how they're acting, um, how the different market dynamics and different different markets are affecting each other. And what what we're seeing, you ask about prediction. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but Uh, I do feel a horribly broad question. But but just uh, are there specific trends, or is there some direction that you see going on? Yeah, well, what I what I see is I think that there is going to be some continued market trepidation for the next six months. I I think that buyers are not as apt to to act unless they have certain urgency right now. Um, I think because of you know certain 
dynamics of, you know, what's going on with terrorism in the world and with the, the presidential election. And I think there's just a lot of uncertainty in the air that people um, are not moving as, as quickly as they used to, um, sure. used to being last year. But, but I think that that's going to be um, fairly short-lived. Um, I do feel like the correction, like people are often still talking about the correction that started in 2018 and when, when is, when are things going to be correct? <laughs> I think wait, wait, you mean 2008? 2008. 2008. Well, right, what did okay, I say? Yeah, 2018. 2018. I was like, there's a correction coming? Oh, gosh, gosh. No, so <laughs> the, the, the downturn of 2008, you know, clearly right. things have corrected. So, you know, there's, you know, not going to be any sort of, you know, continued, I don't think, inflation to help get things back to normal. Um, we're already there. So with that being said, I feel like sellers who are in the market today need to be realistic about price if they want to sell or need to sell. You know, they, they really need to take action to be the front runners because the buyers aren't as, as frothy as they have been off and on. Um, so that, that's my prediction. I think it's going to be, you know, a good like six months before we see how things look on the other side of of the election and of this kind of standstill that's happening in a lot of markets right now. And do you think this is sort of, I mean, another really difficult and, and horribly general question, but like I always, I always say you guys do such a great job of, of creating like the collector kind of vibe. Like I want to like another, another one is the Christie's watch shop. So like the, one of one of the sort of sexiest thing I think that's come out of our affiliation with Christie's and I, you know, I hope they take this right, but it's there's this watch shop. Like they have this online watch shop. It's like basically in kind of an auction style platform and they curate these watches and they're anywhere from like, you know, $1,500 to $20,000. And it's, it somehow it's done this interesting thing. I'm sure particularly for men, but where it's like, Oh, I, I want to collect watches, you know? And I, I have, it's not really realistic, kind of like collecting houses all around the world isn't really realistic, but like every time I go on the concierge site, I get sucked into this world of like, ooh, that's really cool looking. I'm like, I could live in Utah, you know, and like, I want to mm-hmm. do that. And it's like totally irrational. I can't afford any of that mm-hmm. stuff. But but you've done such a great job at it. And, and I know some of your clients and your database, just from personal experience, I know that you do actually have these sort of collectors or people that have been like repeat yeah. clients. I'm mm-hmm. wondering though, do you see, or is this even in the, your realm of observation, like the the trends in the buyer, and as the younger, sort of, uh, more affluent kind of come onto the scene, and I'm, you know, I hate to ask the token mm-hmm. millennial question, but as that younger buyer comes on the scene, are high-end home sales like just relevant to them or not, or like what, what do you think? Because I always get this kind of like you know, I have I have a friend who always says, you know, uh, access trumps ownership, right? So he's like in the Airbnb kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why do you have to own it? You just fly around the world and stay wherever mm-hmm. you want. Does does that show up as like a threat on your radar, or is that just a complete misnomer, or or what do you think? I don't think it's a misnomer. I mean, I think that there definitely are clients who fit in that space, but I I also think that there will always 
be a certain set of elite clients who enjoy real estate and, and do spend money on real estate. And that's what they grew up doing if they have inheritance money or that's what they feel like they want to spend their made it money on, right? Is fun right, places right. to enjoy. So I, I do see that there will continue to be sales in the high end. Now there, there is an overall, um, through I think all price points in the market move towards kind of less square footage on properties that are owned, you know, maybe not needing to be so extravagant, but there are always people who, who will spend on these extravagant properties. It just depends on what price they're going to pay for them. Um, And, and this other thing about property collectors, I mean, collector often means that you're going to, Hold, you're going to buy it and hold on to it, but a lot of these, you know, folks in that price category are buying and selling properties all the time. So, uh, right, you know, right. one year, especially in these know, sort they, of second home markets, right? Yeah, yeah. So they want to own, you know, the the Kauai North Shore house for three years, and then they'll sell that, and then they'll buy something in the Bahamas, and right. you know, they're kind of always moving around, and that's what we're finding with our clients, like the ones you mentioned in our database. Um, we have a lot of repeat buyers who then become sellers, and, and they're just always moving and shaking. And, and they're, they're enjoying the properties. They're actually using them as vacation homes. These aren't just investors, um, but that's just kind of part of their lifestyle. Got it. Well, phew, that makes me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about just sort of Laura Brady, the person. So, you know, one of the – let me get back early on when I said – People always ask me, you know, how do you do it? You know, you've got all these agents and all these offices and all this stuff. And like, ironically, I would say it's just, this will be, the person asking has like, you know, three kids between the ages of like three and six. And I'm like, really? You're asking me how I do it? Like, come on. But now right. I, I'm here. I'm, I'm talking to you, and you have twin girls. You're mm-hmm. pregnant, and you're running mm-hmm. this massive company that has all of this market reach and all this growth. It's like, really? I mean, so. Well, how do you do it? I mean, what what is there a what's can I get the Laura Brady pill? What is it? Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> I, I I I do that get that question often. I mean, for me, it really is just a matter of I take I take every day as it comes. You're right. I have twin three year olds, and I'm eight months pregnant with a third girl, and so we're gonna have three under the age of three. Um, First off, kudos go to my husband. He's he's very helpful and supportive and business wise and personally. Um, Corbin but, Corbin does also have great taste in hats, by the way. Just a quick sidebar. <laughs> he has great taste in hats, and he especially loves Hawaii because he's a surfer. So the more business we can get there, the better. Um, so anyway, I, I would say that I, I really just take every day as it comes. Um, I, I ask for help where I need it. That's something that my mother has always taught me. Like. Um, she calls it Tom Sawyering, right? Like Tom Sawyer got all these friends to help him paint the fence. Now he actually sat back and just watched them paint, which is not what I do, but um, you got to have other people supporting you around you. So when we got to the point as a company where I could actually hire more management level roles like we have now to help support, um, that was a huge turning point because the first four years of the business, um, we were just working ourselves to the bone and, um, you know, you just have to have to get there to the point where where you then um, aren't the, the only person sustaining the company. That's important for the company too. Um, and then personally, same thing. I mean, I just try to have a, a good support system around me, and 
Um, I try to make my family time be really concentrated on my family. So when I'm home on the weekends, I try to not um, spend too much time on my phone. I actually like don't like for my kids to see me on my phone. So, you know, maybe I'll go upstairs and have Corbin watch them while I answer emails and stuff for a little while and then come back down and be really devoted to them. And similarly, when I'm at work, I, I try to just really concentrate on work. So um, the separation of, of family work, and then I'll also point out personal is different than family life, right? You have your business life, you have your family life, and you have your personal life. And personally, it's really taking care of yourself as a person and enriching yourself. And I try to take time to do that, to be alone. Um, when I'm home with the kids, that is not personal time. I'm not alone and calm and centered. So, um, you know, I try to take some time off work. Um, now I'm, I'm putting in full time right now, but six months ago I was taking off every Wednesday and Friday afternoon to either, you know, concentrate on work things that were not, in the day-to-day, but instead, like, go escape somewhere to, to think bigger picture or to do things for, for myself personally, um, you know, working out or getting a massage or going to the doctor or whatever, setting, setting that kind of side actually on my calendar. And everyone in the office knew that it was Wednesday and Friday. I'm just not doing that right now because I'm about to also be off for maternity leave for a little while, so I'm I, trying to cram, cram everything so, in that I can. <laughs> it's so. so relevant. You know, I think, I think most of the people listening to this are probably in sales, and I think, you know, that, that notion of time blocking often shows up inside the context of selling, right? Like, I'm going to time block yeah. the prospect, or I'm going to time block to do, you know, something related to my business. But mm-hmm. often it doesn't show up for things like family or personal health or well-being or and that's it's it's amazing to hear people who are hugely successful who are running big companies who have families who say that because it's like hello that's that's the secret sauce right and i think especially in sales one of the things that's really easy to be in denial about when you're running a a real full-time sales career and i think that's distinct from like you or me like i wouldn't i i do business development but I, i wouldn't say i'm like sales anywhere near like are are selling brokers and agents is that they it's sort of like once you fire up that application once you go into sales mode it's easy to be in denial about how much ram that application takes like your whole machine is running the sales application and and it's really difficult to like fire up another thing and like go and do blah 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 like i'm gonna have an ice cream store on the side or i'm gonna do Mm, you know whatever like it's just all encompassing and and you hear it in the conversations, like how pervasive it is and how you're on the phone on the weekends and blah, blah, blah. But I do think there's power in being able to shut it down. There's power in being able to take time for yourself, take time for your family, like not have your phone on. Like I, mm-hmm. I my wife never hears my phone ring, mm-hmm. ever. It doesn't ring in the house. Like now it's always on, on, you know, vibrate or silent. Vibrate or, yeah. But, right. it, but it's, that's part of that commitment. It's like, you know, have a boundary. It's a new thing, and I'd argue, you know, obviously it really works. It helps. So mm-hmm. kudos to you because you're you're a, a huge, huge role model, I think, in that regard. And mm-hmm. that, uh, the next question is: This is, you know, I, whenever I I there's so much baggage around this question that you just have to bear with it. But like, you know, you're in, especially at the CEO or president or you know whatever top level, you're in an industry that really is it's strange in that most of the practitioners are women yet most of the CEOs Mm -hmm. are men. So, Mm -hmm. 
is that is that weird or does it does it show up in the real world for you? I mean, or even like at the level of going to a conference or when you have to kind of uh, do business, or is it just part of the course and you're you're rolling with it? I mean, I I certainly roll with it, but it does show up. I would say that also in real estate there are more women in leadership positions than there are in most other industries, maybe actually any other industry. I'm, right. I'm part of YPO, the Young Presidents Organization in Austin, and there are, gosh, it's pushing 90 members, and there are four women So out of 90. So you have to be you know, of a certain age, which is young. You have to have joined before you were 40, and your business has to be however big. So um, there are very few women. And I, I mean, I, listen, I've read like Sheryl Sandberg lean in and I, you know, believe that, you know, we should have more women in leadership positions, but I actually, I was pretty lucky that I didn't grow up feeling like I was at a detriment because I was a woman. I actually find it empowering to be in a group of men because I have different viewpoints than they do and I can learn from theirs and they can learn from mine and they're, it really is that men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? We're just different. So I, I, I do really believe in the male-female dynamic in the workplace. Like, you know, you and Katie work so well together, and Chad and I work well together, and there are different, um, you know, just different traits that we can bring. So, I, I mean, I, I, I'd love for more women to be in higher-up positions. It, I think that they – women need to have confidence that they can, right? There's, we, again, we have different traits. Typically women have, you know, more compassion in them for leadership roles. It's not saying men aren't compassionate, but that's just the kind of, I guess, motherly instinct, instincts that come in us. And, you know, they're, the yin and the yang works well together, I think. Yeah. Do you think mm-hmm. that, that some of the decisions that were made at concierge are, I mean, you know, I, I, it's like I don't know how to talk about this without sounding sexist, but do you, do you think that some of the yeah. decisions that were made along the way were were unique to you being a woman? Because I, when I look at it, when I see, you know, like coming to Austin was really, really powerful for me because I, it, and this is, I'm not, you know, this, it's not exaggeration to say that it shows up like it's a very, very, like, not, while it's organized and while there's a lot of structure, it's also very, very collaborative and very kind of all hands on deck towards these very specific outputs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that I don't I don't know if that's a man or woman thing, but I, I mean I guess I'm asking you: do you does it, is that a Laura Brady thing or a Chad Rothers thing? Or is because it, if I if I had to guess, the predictable cycle is that you end up with a much more sort of hierarchical kind of um, very rigid, acute structure if, if it's all dudes, you know, I, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm just making that up. I don't know, but uh, maybe that's not even answerable. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> I, I guess it's hard to think about like, would I be doing di- this differently if I were a man? But um, right. I don't know. I, I, I've, you're a, you're someone that I sort of look up to and I, I look out and I see like, well, what would Laura Brady do? And, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke. I really mean that. And I've, I've, you know, reached out to you for advice along the way. And it's been, it's been powerful to watch. I mean, I, I see it like, you know, you guys are not afraid to invest in your people, which I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not afraid to spend money and, and like in, in the right ways, which I love because it's like, 
it shows up like it's aggressive towards, you know, an outcome, which I like because it's like, oh, wow, you can do that? You know, that's okay. So I, I, mm-hmm. it's, it's inspiring to watch. It's really, it's been really sweet. So yeah. who are your, who are your sort of inspirations? Like, do you have, do you have heroes out there in, in business or in life that you kind of like, do you think would so-and-so do? Mm, goodness. So in life, I, I've had a lot of family females in my life that have been really inspirational. My my mother and my two grandmothers were both very business-minded. And my mom's always been an entrepreneur at heart. She does a lot of different real estate investing and development, and she's started different businesses through the years. So I always grew up seeing that. And so she's certainly an inspiration. Um, my other grandmother was working until she was 89 years old. She owned oh 30, re- 30 rental properties and she would go around collecting rent from her tenants. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> You know, my then the grandmother on the other side spoke five languages and was a was an immigrant from Germany during the war. So anyway, I think that having strong female role models in my family was really important for me growing up. And then business wise, um, I have so many different inspirations. But a close mentor of mine has been Barbara Corcoran. She sits on our advisory board, and she had she really helped me find that family personal work balance a few years ago when I started working with her and so Mm. she's been a a good um you know person to lean on both from a professional and a personal level Um, and has been no no slouch in her professional life either I I mean I mean you know you have to have to value the Corcoran group that she grew and sold and then her work her work with Shark Tank and, and other endorsements and stuff. So anyway, I would say that she's like, she's my closest like real mentor, but then there are definitely other people that I watch and look up to, but might only know from well, afar. Yeah. I hope I have the pleasure of knowing you and hanging out with you when you're 89 years old. That would be, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So let's let's wrap it up i just i want to just acknowledge you and thanks for going in the sort of long form i mean katie katie does these in like 30 minute intervals and we've we've been on for an hour and i love the deep dive and it's sort of like consistent with you know the the workshop kind of mentality of of like how to think instead of what to do um Mm -hmm. and i know you won't be able to make it because you're probably going to have a new little girl in your house right around that time um Chad, chad and crystal will both be there right Yes, Chad and Crystal will be there, and I think we'll also have a few other um, few others from our sales group there too. Awesome, yeah. I love it. All right, so come come check out Worth Shop and come corner Chad and, and Crystal and get your your updates on concierge auctions and all the cool stuff they can do for you. And mahalo, Laura, and mahalo to concierge auctions and booyah! That's that's uh, episode number one in the books. <laughs> Way to go. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you.